You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. So we are jumping back into the book of James, which was written by Jesus' brother. Younger brother, I might add. You might think, well, how do you know it's his younger brother? Well, there's something about the virgin birth that I need maybe to explain to you at some other point then. Jesus had, as we best we know, four brothers. He had a couple of sisters at least as well. They grew up in a blue-collar family. Their dad was a carpenter, a construction worker. So these boys would, would get up every morning, put on their steel-toed sandals, <laughs> grab their tools, and head off to work with dad doing carpentry, construction, if you will. These are not guys that were raised in a religious institution. They were raised by a dad who went to work every day. And so what James is talking about is very practical. It's about having your faith work out through your life, to put it to work in your life. The theme of the book of James, as we've been talking about, is a faith that works. And if there was a sub-theme to the book, it's this from the first couple of, well, James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where he says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face many trials, trials of many kinds. Let me pause here just a second. (laughs) How difficult is this to hear? Shouldn't it read, consider it a hardship when you face trials? Consider it a huge struggle? Consider it joyless when you face trials of any kind? That's not the way James puts this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds because... You know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. What he's saying is life has many trials. There are hard seasons, difficulties, obstacles. And these are opportunities for you and me to seek joy. So you're going through trials and the question is, what joy is going to come into your life to get you through that trial? If you can find joy in your trial, you can persevere through that trial. And the problem is, we live in a time of an unprecedented number of trials, global trials, national, regional, personal, relational, physical, financial, emotional, spiritual trials. Some of you have major decisions facing you. Some of you, you need to make a major medical decision which may affect your job. Some of you, you're trying to figure out what to do with your life. You're trying to figure out what is it that God wants for you in this very moment. You're reading James 1. We saw this last week and it says, if any of you lack wisdom... Ask for it, and God will bring it. So 
you've got a decision to make and, and you're worried. Is this going to be a good or bad decision? Is this going to be right or wrong, wise or foolish? And that's where God's timeless word and prayer come into play. You turn to him because he knows how he has hardwired you and created you. And so what God wants you to do is to receive something, reorient your mind toward a new pattern, a new pathway so that you can get out of whatever loop, whatever cycle you've been in that has led you to bad decisions that have led to more pain in your life. God wants you to create these new pathways because otherwise you're overwhelmed, you're exhausted, and you can't handle anymore. And all you can think about is you want comfort, you want relief, you want rest, you want diversion. And you will go to almost any length to have that, and that's where you get into trouble. So today, James, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is going to warn us that whenever we face trials, we oftentimes choose to comfort ourselves. We oftentimes choose to seek some sort of satisfaction in either our stuff or in our sin. Those are the two categories. And here's the first concept. Your joy is not found in your stuff. Here's how James continues in his, in his book. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. That is your high position by being a believer in Jesus. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. He's comparing two kinds of people that are going through a trial, those who are rich, those who are poor, and how they use their stuff to increase their satisfaction. Now, what happens when it comes to trying to find satisfaction or joy or comfort or relief in our stuff, Christians tend to deal with this in one of two tracks. There are the prosperity people, there are the poverty people. The prosperity people think, well, the more stuff I have, the more joy I'll have, the better my life will be. It's like you're, you're trying to make God into this vending machine, and if you just push the button of faith, I get out what I want. That's prosperity theology. The flip side of the coin, the poverty people say, well, you know what? Joy is not found in having more stuff, but in having less stuff. So you go tiny house nation. You have a yard sale. Either way, what they're doing is making the same mistake. Thinking that our joy is tied to our stuff. Because here's the big idea. You don't just have things. Things have you. And I'm not saying it's bad to go shopping. I'm not saying it's bad to spend money. What I am saying is that in and of itself, that is not going to fix your trial. That's not going to reduce your anxiety. That's not going to transform your future. And then if we're not careful, we start spending money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't know. All that to say, 
What he's talking about here are the rich and the poor, but here's the problem. When it comes to our wealth and possession, finances, we tend to think culturally and not biblically. So we think there are just two categories, the rich and the poor. But biblically, there are four categories, the godly rich, the godly poor, the ungodly rich, the ungodly poor. So we've got to think in terms of the way God sees it. Think about your money and wealth, finances, your possessions, the way God thinks about them. So let's talk through those four categories. Are there people in the Bible who are godly and poor? Yes. James, who write this? Who writes this? Is his family is a part of that category. Remember when Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph go to the temple. They present the sacrifice needed. Well, they can't give the one that's supposed to be given. They have to give the offering that is designated strictly for the poor. Jesus, as an adult with his disciples, sitting by a temple, tells the true story of a widow. All she has are two copper coins, and she gives them to the Lord. She's poor, but she's godly. In addition, the godly rich. Are there people in the Bible who are godly and loaded? <laughs> yes. There's a guy named Abraham in Genesis. God gives him incredible abundance. By the end of that same book, Joseph becomes the CFO of the nation of Egypt, the most powerful, wealthiest nation on the planet. And he is godly filled with the Holy Spirit, and God puts him in a position of great wealth. All right, let's keep going. Are there people who are poor, but it's because they're ungodly? Yes. The book of Proverbs talks a lot about these people, and he calls them sluggards. Have you ever seen a slug? They're not real motivated. Like, you find one, you go away for an hour, you come back, it's still there. You can threaten the slug, you can yell at the slug, you can scare the slug. It's not moving. Some people are like that. They are slug-like. They're not going to work. There's no motivation. There's no ambition. And then the final category, there are those people in the Bible who are rich, but they are ungodly. Think of Pharaoh in Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, Herod in the first century. These guys are loaded. They have huge estates. Everyone answers to them. Many of them have harems and servants, and everything that they are about is more and more for themselves. They're all about winning while everyone else around them is losing, and that is so ungodly. The point is this. God doesn't care as much if you're rich or poor. He cares much if you are godly or ungodly. So what happens in our culture is we look at your income. God looks at your character. Man looks on the outside. God looks at the heart. And so as you're looking at your life and you're going through trials, 
It's your character that's going to determine your choices. So let me ask you this, and don't raise a hand, but how many of you in a trial, your first thought is, I need to go get more stuff. I need to spend more money. I need to have some pleasure. I need to have a diversion. And then for others in the midst of a trial, it's not your first instinct to find joy in your stuff. Your first instinct is to find joy in your sin. You see, when there's more pressure and there's more anxiety in here, there's more temptation for sin. That's where James is going with this next. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, meaning enduring, not giving in, not surrendering to sin. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him when tempted. Now, he doesn't say if you're tempted. He's saying when you're tempted, because we all are going to get tempted to do sin. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God is good. He is not evil. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Here's what he's saying. When you're under pressure, when you're in a trial, your brain has a tendency to say, enough. If you're not careful, you'll be of those people who drink more and eat more and spend more and get angry more. So when those temptations come, and they will, we all face them. You're taking a test. And you're either going to pass or fail that test. And if you pass the test, you are steadfast, you're stable, you're finding joy in the midst of what God is trying to teach you. Now, the good, is, good news is we've all failed our test and sinned. But God is generous and allows us to retake the test. What happens when you fail your test is that you surrender to sin. That's where we get into trouble. That's where one of the things we can do, James says, is we blame God. And we'll say, or at least think, things like, well, God didn't come through for me. So I have a right to do some things that he said no to because these are what I want to do. And he wasn't there. He let me down. So we blame God and we do our own thing. This happened all the way back in Genesis 3. There were two people on earth, Adam and Eve. Adam is supposed to be the leader. His wife is supposed to be the co-leader. God tells them, okay, you guys get along, eat anything you want. But from this one tree, I'll be back in a little bit. God leaves. The serpent, Satan, shows up, and he convinces them to eat from the very thing that God told them not to. Everything blows up. The earth is ruined. So then God shows up. Where are you, Adam? 
Immediately, what does Adam do? He blames Eve. He's like, hey, God, you made her. We got a defective product here. You were gone, so what was I supposed to do? I thought you were supposed to help, and all of a sudden this evil creature shows up, and you probably made the evil creature and the woman, so it's your fault. I blame you. I in the victim. I forgive you. Well, then what happens next is Eve blames Satan. The point is everyone is blaming someone, and only those who love God are able to persevere and own responsibility for their own decision-making. If you're looking at your external circumstances saying, well, well, here's the reason why. You know what's happening out there doesn't have to determine what's in here. That's determined by you, by me. The lie is always this. God isn't that good and sin isn't that bad. But the truth is sin does two things. It defies God and it damages us. So we may be like, well, why do I have to do what God says? The answer, because he loves you and he's trying to save you from yourself. Any good parent makes rules. Not to constrict the freedom of their child, but to preserve the life of their child. God is a father. We are his kids. Sin doesn't just defy him. It damages you. No one in the midst of a trial who chooses sin makes their situation better. We've all done that, right? But that's not who you and I were made to be. And to get at that, you have to intentionally, you have to intentionally start a new process. That might mean you turn off your phone and you turn on your soul. You've got to meet with the Lord and have communion with him. Invite the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom. Do the James 1.5 thing. Ask for help. So rather than picking up the battle, I'm going to pick up my Bible. Like I'm going to start some new habits and new patterns because there's a trigger in me that leads to self-destruction and I got to get out of that loop. That literally is about renewing the mind. Apostle Paul talks about that in, in Romans 12. Renewing your mind. You know that is possible for the child of God with the spirit of God. And so how do you pass your test? Because we've all got a test. It's the temptation test. The way you and I pass the test when we are under pressure and we are tempted is two things. First, I want you to know that it's not a sin to be tempted. For some people, as soon as you're tempted, the enemy whispers in your ear, I can't believe you're thinking about that. I can't believe you're, you're thinking that that should be. I can't believe you're tempted by that. And immediately, you're just devastated and you're disappointed and you are defeated. And you know what that is? That's demonic. That's not God talking to you. That's the enemy talking to you. 
He is the accuser, accuser of the children of God, accusing them day and night. That's Revelation 12, 10. So what he's going to do in that moment, he's going to accuse you of sin, and you've not sinned. You're taking your test, but he's telling you you've already failed. The truth is, it's not a sin to be tempted. The temptation is a test. Let me let you hear it this way. Was Jesus ever tempted? Yes. Did he sin? No. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet he was without sin. So the really big question is, how do you say no to sin? He's got a word here, desire. It's a powerful word. And that word desire can mean something positive or something negative in the New Testament. Oftentimes when it's used, it's used in the context of the desires of the flesh versus the desires of the spirit. And if you don't know Jesus, all you have are the desires of the flesh. That's why non-Christians can't understand Christians. They're like, why do you not want to do that? That feels good. Because there's another way, the way of the Spirit. And it says in Galatians that the flesh and the Spirit are against one another. And the flesh wants to win out so that you don't do what God wants you to do. Now, if you're a Christian... This is good news for you because you have the Holy Spirit. You have a new nature. You are a new creation. You're not perfect, but you're new and you're in the process of being perfected. And what you now have are new desires. So the way that you overcome the desire of the flesh is with the desire of the Spirit because the desires of the Spirit are stronger desires. That's why a sinning Christian is a miserable Christian. The things that we used to do as a non-Christian just don't have that same staying power with us anymore. And that's because the Holy Spirit is convicting you and that's because God is loving you. This is the Father looking at you and saying, that's not who you are anymore. That's not what you do anymore. That's not what you desire anymore. That's not who you're going to be when I'm through with you. So let's be through with this. You see, some people, when they're choosing joy in their stuff, or they're choosing joy in their sin, what they're really wanting is a blessing from God. They really want a blessing from God, whether they know it or not. So James said in verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres in a trial. Do you want God's blessing? Do you want to persevere and endure and not give up and give in in the midst of a trial? These are the people upon whom God is putting his blessing so let me say this, your blessing is not in your stuff, your blessing is not in your sin, your blessing comes in the Holy Spirit. Now when you hear and think of this concept of blessing, some people think, well, how come God blesses them and he's not blessing me? 
Yes, God does bless people, but mostly he blesses a place. That place is in obedience to his word. So he's going to tell us, coming up shortly, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. If you want to be blessed, live in the place God blesses. That is in obedience to his word. Now, granted, there are people who are blessed and they just sort of get arrogant and they presume on that grace of God and they choose sin for a while and they're like, well, why is that blessing not flowing toward me anymore? Because they've stopped obeying. In the same way that a good parent doesn't reward bad behavior, our God cannot, our God will not Reward disobedience. If you want to do that which is wrong, he is not going to help you do that which is wrong. If you want to do that which is right, he will help you. But let me say this about blessing. Blessings always don't look like a blessing because sometimes they are wrapped in a trial and it takes faith to see it. Let me explain what I mean. So we're talking about James. Who was his mom? Mary. Mary, Thank you. (laughs) It wasn't really that much of a trick question. (laughs) Mary was a teenage girl in a rural town from a peasant family. And an angel shows up and tells her, you are blessed. God has chosen you to birth the Messiah. How is that blessing going to look? Her reputation would be destroyed. Everybody in this small religious town thought she was running around her fiancé, that she was lying to him, and that he would be an idiot for staying with her. In addition, her fiancé, Joseph, hears that she's pregnant. They've not been together. His first instinct is, I'm not going to marry you. I'm done with you. She could have been a single mom with a destroyed reputation in a small religious town. That's a trial. She raises Jesus. He goes into public ministry. People hate him, despise him, oppose him, attack him, crucify him. And there is Mary the foot of Jesus' cross when he is being murdered. And she was told by the angel, blessed are you. Sometimes the blessing is wrapped in a trial and it takes faith to see the blessing in the midst of the trial. It'll take faith to believe that God will use something ugly to make something beautiful in your life. It will take faith to believe that God will use something that should have destroyed you to deliver you. It will take faith to see that God would use something that should have broken you to heal you. 
But that's how our God works. Last section for today. James says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. God says, I'm here to help. I'm here to put a blessing on you. I'm here to put the Holy Spirit in you. I'm here to put joy in you. I'm here to put hope in you. That is the Father heart of God. And here's what he's also saying. Gifts come down. As trials come up, gifts come down. And the more trials that come up, the more gifts come down. And when that happens, those gifts that come down help pull me up to endure the trial. If you're not a Christian, let me tell you this. Jesus Christ is God. And he came down as a gift from the Father. And before you can deal with any problem, you have to deal with the sin problem in your life. And you need Jesus. And Jesus Christ is the gift that God sent down because we have chosen our stuff and we have chosen our sin And he wants to be our savior. If you've never received Jesus, that's why you're here. You are a sinner. He is the savior. You're not going up to God. God is coming down to you. His name is Jesus Christ. He died in your place for your sins. He rose to forgive your sin. He ascended into heaven into his kingdom where right now he is ruling and reigning and preparing a place for you if you will turn from your sin and trust in him. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.